and welcome to Boston Private Perspectives. I'm Shannon Sakosha, Chief Investment Officer at Boston Private. As we approach the end of what has been, by all accounts, an extraordinary year, we will take the opportunity over the next several weeks to highlight several challenges and opportunities we see for investors and business owners coming into 2021. It is our mission to provide thoughtful, balanced information that we hope can be helpful for you as you take the time to set your priorities for the coming year. And we always welcome your suggestions on topics you would like to learn more about, as well as offer the opportunity to speak with my colleagues across the Boston Private team about any questions that you may have. With that said, one of the biggest questions for 2020 appears to be close to a resolution. While President Trump has yet to concede to former Vice President Joe Biden, there is evidence that the Trump administration is moving towards a path of transition. Rather than expecting that legal challenges to the votes in the major swing states will yield a different outcome. Acceptance of this need to transition will hopefully yield a smoother path, with President-elect Biden offered the opportunity to receive important intelligence briefings and information about what is honestly the biggest issue facing the U.S. right now, which is the explosion in COVID-19 cases across the country. Of course, this isn't just happening here. We've seen evidence over the last several weeks that outbreaks which had been limited in Europe and almost non-existent in Asia since the first wave have been picking up substantially. The Europeans were the first to sound the alarms, as France and Germany initiated month-long lockdowns, followed by Belgium and the UK, all focused on limiting access to establishments such as restaurants and bars that have become associated with the spread of COVID-19. The Europeans have chosen to take a similar approach to what we saw globally in March and April, which are essentially large-scale lockdowns calling for staying at home, only going out when you need essential items, and limiting any exposure to other people outside of your household without a mask. This is likely to produce meaningful economic impact for this month, but one of the reasons that the European governments have decided to put this in place for November is that they are looking to protect and hopefully, hopefully insulate their economies Um, for the Christmas shopping season. One of the major differences, of course, in the way that the Europeans are able to control things like lockdowns and stay-at-home mandates is that they can do them at the national level. And so from the perspective of trying to create a two, three, or four-week short, impactful lockdown these countries are able to do that. And we saw that they were more successful in avoiding those second waves over the summer um, than we were here in the United States. And so one of the challenges that Europe and now the U.S. have had that we have not seen in Asia is we're unclear at this point where COVID-19 is spreading most frequently. While there are some clear sources of spread, things like nursing homes, uh, things like large public events, there is not as much evidence or it is difficult to trace 
the evidence of how many people are actually being affected by going to a restaurant, by going to an outdoor gathering, by going to an indoor gathering with uh, more than, you know, six to 10 people. And so while contact tracing has been very effective in Asia and has been one of the reasons that coupled with mask wearing that we have seen really no additional second surge as of yet, contract tracing in Europe and the United States has been highly ineffective in trying to determine where COVID is being spread. So as I mentioned, Europe is going back to sort of large-scale lockdowns and thinking about it in terms of let's just halt activity to make sure that we don't overrun our healthcare workers and hospitals. And then we will reassess as we get to the end of November to see if we're able to reopen for the Christmas season. Here in the United States, it's not as clear cut. And obviously what we've seen over the course of the last seven months is that much of the onus has been put on state and local governments to make decisions about how they want to contain or prevent the spread of COVID-19 in their communities. Um, The federal government under the Trump administration has been unwilling to put forth a national mask mandate. Instead, they've allowed governors at the state level or even at the local level in communities to determine mask wearing protocols. In addition, we have seen uh, mixed results as far as being able to provide PPE across state lines. There have been multiple states who have been looking for aid over the course of the last six months, and that has been a hotly contested aspect of the recent fiscal stimulus negotiations about how much state and local aid would come to those communities that chose, frankly, to be more prohibitive in their uh, stay at home and social distancing mandates and therefore experienced uh, significantly more of an economic impact in the March-April timeframe. So now we're in this period of political transition, and President-elect Biden has selected several scientists um, to lead his coronavirus response team. We have heard from at least one of those individuals who has been tapped as an advisor to the president-elect about a longer-term lockdown, whether it's four or six weeks, that would be put into place in order to bridge the gap between what's happening today and when some of the vaccines will be available. And I'll talk about those a little bit more in a minute. And the challenge, of course, is is that that national lockdown has very little support in at least half of the country at this point. And so the response is certainly going to be more nuanced, very similar to what we saw in March and April. Um, perhaps even more impactful at the local level. And so while we may see under a Biden administration a national mask mandate, um, I we still understand that with states' rights and how critical they are as part of our overall political structure, there's likely going to be some latitude at the state level, even in something like a national mask mandate. And so, again, I think we're, we're back to where we were in March and April. We're thinking about this in terms of what can we do at the local government level to help prevent the spread. But that comes back to how effective are we at doing that? 
And how targeted can we be without this information that would be gleaned from contact tracing that, as I said, has been um, essentially, you know, ineffective here in the United States. And so with that national mask mandate, with this localized response, and with already major cities such as New York City, Chicago, Boston, California has already been on a much slower path to reopening than the rest of the country. And so they could even start moving backwards in that um, and creating even more restrictions than they have currently. And with that as the backdrop, what is the large-scale economic impact in a second wave? Our view is that it will not be as disruptive as what we experienced in March and April. First and foremost, we don't believe that all shopping activity, all restaurant activity will be restricted under this second wave, except perhaps in municipalities that are hit particularly hard by the virus. And so, you know, going back, things like eating outside, things like takeout from restaurants, being able to go to stores that are not quote unquote essential businesses, uh, probably there will be an effort to keep those businesses open given the number of small business closures that we've already seen earlier in the year and the massive number of job losses that we experienced. And so businesses that are operating today, um, I think that the policies that will be put in place are going to be in line or aligned with a goal to keep those businesses open if possible during this next phase. Businesses that are not operating at capacity are not operating at all. And so you think about cruise lines, hotels, uh, airlines. Those are probably going to continue to struggle. If you look, we had recent news this week that one of the first cruise liners to go out since cruising was essentially taken off the table earlier this year, there are already several patients who've tested positive for COVID-19. And that creates this behavioral response that perhaps this isn't something that I necessarily feel safe doing. And so that brings us to vaccines. And you think about consumer activity, we had already started to shift, you know, over the last several years to spending more on lifestyle than on goods, to enjoying experiences like travel rather than spending all of our money on things. And in order for that lifestyle spend to come back where we're going to the movies, we're going on vacation, there needs to be confidence that the people around you are not going to make you sick. And so while masks can do that to some extent, um, you know, I don't know about you, but sitting in a restaurant and having a table that's six or 10 or 12 feet next to me with a, a number of unmasked individuals, um, I don't know that that necessarily makes me feel all that much safer as their masks are removed while they're eating and drinking. And so I think what we really need to see is we do need to see some success in getting the population vaccinated. And so the equity markets and the bond markets, for that matter, have both reacted to news of Pfizer's vaccine uh, a week ago, and now today with the news of the Moderna vaccine. And the reason that markets are reacting so positively to that, knowing full well that there is going to be this economic dislocation in the near term, is that those vaccines will create confidence. 
And that will create a positive behavioral response on the part of consumers to go back out into their normal lives. With some caveats, of course, uh, there are probably things that have changed behaviorally in general uh, that will exist and persist past the time when, you know, many more people are vaccinated into 2022, for instance. But for the most part, people want to go out and resume their regular lives. And so what a vaccine does is it gives us a window into when we might be able to do so. The other significant change that we've experienced is in the treatment of COVID-19. If you go back to the outbreak in New York City, for instance, that was incredibly challenging for healthcare workers because they were not sure what therapeutics and what solutions could be applied to create a more positive outcome for patients who were suffering from a severe case of COVID-19. So this combination of therapeutic availability, a standard practice for treating COVID-19 patients, and what looks to be several options for vaccines coming into 2021 is why the equity markets, for instance, seem to be looking past this economic dislocation that we are likely to experience over the next several months in both the U.S. and Europe and, and perhaps in other regions as this second surge develops. And so while we would caution that we understand that there is going to be perhaps a dip in economic activity in the next couple of months. The reality is, is that we do not think that it will be a similar drop to what we experienced in March and April. The caveat here, and the final thing that I'll close with, is that the federal government has an opportunity to respond in a way that creates even more confidence in the fact that we can manage through this economic disruption. The CARES Act was put in place in order to help insulate the economy from further impact from COVID-19. We had already experienced significant job losses. Businesses were already closing by the time the CARES Act was put into place. With the knowledge that over the next six to eight weeks, we could see many more lockdowns on a localized level, it's really up to Congress to put the mechanism in place up front in order to have things like expanded unemployment benefits and eviction protections and a greater volume of PPP loan availability ahead of the lockdowns. And so, you know, we need to learn from what worked and what didn't work in March and April. What didn't work particularly well were these large-scale lockdowns. What didn't work particularly well were um, was the CARES Act coming, you know, several months essentially after the devastation had already hit. And so now we have an opportunity over the next several weeks to make some choices, even if it's a small fiscal stimulus package um, in this lame duck session of Congress, to put that into place to get ahead of what's happening at the local level on these lockdowns would create a much better longer term act outcome for this second surge of COVID-19. And the hope is, is that that gets us through March or April of next year 
when the vaccines will be more widely available, there will likely be several vaccines that are available by that point. And then we can move into the summer period and have a reset uh, from an economic perspective and look at the back half of next year as really a time when a lot of this pent-up demand will be released. There will be a significant tailwind from fiscal and monetary stimulus that can actually start to accelerate the economy. And we could even see that infrastructure package that I talked about a couple of weeks ago come into play. And so that optimism is going to be hard to hold as we look at daily cases rising at the rate that they're rising, at these stories of hospitals being overrun um, across the country in different regions. But that is what the capital markets are trading on. And that is what we're looking at when we're building portfolios, because we're building them for the next several years. And we believe that economic growth will reaccelerate and that we are entering into a more positive period for economic activity, both here in the United States, as well in your, as in Europe in the back half of next year. Thanks again for listening to this week's podcast. I want to encourage all of you to reach out to our team here at Boston Private with any questions or concerns you may have. Providing guidance and support as a trusted advisor is our mission. If you have any questions or thoughts on my points today, you can find me on Twitter at Shannon Sakosha. You can also read our latest perspectives on the markets, the economy, taxes, estate planning, and the year ahead by visiting bostonprivate.com. If you want all of this information delivered right to your inbox, I encourage you to sign up for our newsletters while you're on our website. Be sure to subscribe to the Boston Private Perspectives on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you prefer to listen. And I look forward to coming to you again next week. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.